Welcome to the teaching ministry at Crothers Creek Community Church. All right. Good morning, C4 Church. Really glad that you're here this morning, and uh, hello to you on our online audience this morning, and special hello to the 80 or 100 women who will be watching this a little bit later uh, as you're back from your retreat. Uh, we're glad that you're having a good time. Some of us can't wait till you're home. Anyway, different conversation. Glad you're meeting Jesus, but uh, get home quickly, please, or the house is going to burn down. Um, so we're in week three in our series, uh, the seven, the, the churches in Revelation. So if you've got a Bible this morning, hard copy or virtual, uh, we'd love you to turn to Revelation chapter two. It's the last book uh, in the Bible. Now, um, one of the heartbeats of Jesus's message to the churches, one thing that John records all the time is an interesting thing that we, we need to think on today and was referenced actually in the worship set this morning. And it's this, It's the act of listening. There's a huge, huge difference between hearing and listening. We hear all sorts of things. If you think about your modern existence, at least mine, I can have my cell phone on and be texting or tweeting and have my laptop on and have music on and have the television on and also have people talking around me. And I acoustically am hearing all of that, but I am not listening. The difference between hearing and listening is intention, where you choose to stop and actually give attention to one of the aspects that you are acoustically encountering. You see this all the time in your own life. You choose not to listen to people, though they're talking, right? Yeah, only one person's honest. We do it all the time. We tune people out. Like, this happens. My daughter um, yesterday was sitting on one of our couches. She had the iPad. She was watching Caillou or something. She's watching my brother-in-law comes over to say goodbye. They're on their way uh, out of the country. So he just wanted to say goodbye to them. And he walks in and he says, Hannah, 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 Hannah. She's hearing this, right? She is hearing it. She's watching Caillou. She hears him talking, but she chooses not to what? Listen. Finally, I remove the iPad. Look at him and listen. Anyway, different, different issue, <laughs> right? Different issue, wishing my wife was there with me at that battle moment. Anyway, listening and hearing. We come to church, many of us who are followers of Jesus or genuine seekers, week after week, you who watch online, and we hear sermons, and we hear songs, and we even sometimes sing, or we respond, and we go to connect groups, and we hear people talk. We hear the word of God. We hear the community of God. We hear the whispers of God, but that is not the point when we come to church. It is not about hearing. It is about intentionally listening, because listening implies relationship and also implies action. The whole goal of this series is to ask one question. What is the living Jesus revealed in the book of Revelation saying to this community for these days at this moment? We cannot just hear good facts about scripture. The goal is that we communally take time to listen and say to the living Christ, what are you actually saying about me and my life and my family now? What is heaven's view? Not my wants or desires or my misinterpreted under, what are you saying? Am I listening? And not only about me, what are you saying actually about our whole church? This is the heartbeat of this series. Why? 
Because as we started, since our theme this year is joy, the more we encounter the risen, glorified Christ, the more we will be led to worship. The more we are led to worship, the more what we will have? Joy. But there's nothing more profound than the living Jesus actually speaking and telling us the truth about ourselves, our family, and our church, painful or not painful. Why? Because there is joy when Jesus speaks because we know he's not tainted by sin, misunderstanding. He speaks truth. And there is joy in a world that does not like truth when truth is found. Right? So the question this morning, the question for the next few weeks is, are we going to hear or listen? And we'll get back to that at the end. If you've been with us for the last two weeks, we started this series, Joanna did, with preaching on the glorified Christ. The most profound experience in the whole of Scripture, actually, where Jesus, by John, is, is seen in the most glorified state. And with him sort of as our focus, with him as agent and center, we then get to come to Revelation 2. Last week we were in, in the church in Ephesus. Jesus this week chooses to speak to another community in another city. He, he chooses to show up. And notice, he chooses to show up and speak to another gathered group of Christians like us. Our journey today begins in a city called Smyrna, one of the most important cities in Asia Minor at the time. It's actually still in existence today in Turkey. It's called Izmir. It's the only city left out of the seven in Scripture. Last week, like I said, we explored the city of Ephesus, but the city of Smyrna actually vies for fame and preeminence with Ephesus. The city is located 35 miles north of Ephesus. It's built around a famous harbor still there today. It was a proud city. It was actually known for its beauty. It had a stadium, a famous library, a huge public theater. It actually is the birthplace of the great epic poet Homer. The population at this time is 200,000. And again, for this time, it's significant. It's huge. But more interestingly is this. Rising up from the harbor is a mountain, 500 feet, Mount Pages. Around the mountain was what they called the Street of Gold, a road, road that wrapped around the mountain like a necklace on a woman. But at each end, there was dedications to different gods. See, it was a religious road. There was temples to Zeus and Sibyl. Coins, if you found them from the time, describe Smyrna as first in Asia with beauty and size. It may have had a smaller population than Ephesus, but its grandeur, its architecture was stunning. But there's more. We we need to understand what I'm about to share with you so we understand the power of Jesus' words so then when we hear them, then we can listen and then act. There's a very special relationship between Rome and the city 2,000 years ago. They had militarily allied themselves with Rome even before Rome became a grand superpower. And because of this historic relationship, they were on the forefront of what we talked about last week, the imperial cult. That is worshiping Caesar himself as God. When Jesus Christ was born, Augustus was in power. And most interestingly, he was called two things. The son of what? God and the prince of peace. Anyone know someone who has those titles too? Oh, right, Jesus, right. They worshipped Caesar as God. There was no separation between church and state. They were the same thing. To be a good Roman was to worship Caesar. And then you could choose other gods of your choosing as a family. The rub came down when Christians 
started encountering the true Prince of Peace, the true Savior, and they would not worship Caesar any longer. Now what would they do? But there's more. There's not only tension between Christians and the Roman understanding of life and religion. There is now another showdown taking place, more painful. It's actually between family members, old friends. There's nothing more painful. We all know it sitting here or watching online. We know there is nothing more painful than when families struggle with each other. And this is what's beginning to happen here. There's a growing tension between the Jewish community of its day, very significant in Smyrna, and now a mixed community of Jews and non-Jews who now claim to be the true Israel, the true people of God, because they have claimed that Jesus Christ is the King of the Jews, He's the Messiah, He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob found in flesh. So now into that catch-22, between Rome and Jerusalem, between everyone's family members and bosses and friends, Jesus comes. He comes into that inescapable situation and speaks into a very real suffering. He's going to share with them that he's aware of their suffering. He's going to tell them what is coming. Significant that Dan Dan led us today in faithful songs. Because this is the heartbeat of this message. Revelation 2.8, if you've got your Bible, reads like this. To the angel in church of Smyrna, write, I didn't know this before I studied it this week. Smyrna means myrrh, perfume of the day. And this is absolutely significant to understanding how Jesus is about to reveal himself to this community. The tabernacle in the Old Old Testament, before the temple, where Moses would be face-to-face, mouth-to-mouth with the living God, it was anointed, interestingly, in myrrh. Later, when Jesus is born, he's probably two years old at this point, magi from the east come. We celebrate this at Christmas. The wise men come, and they give Jesus what? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Jesus is murdered, tortured, brutal. He's now laid in a grave. On Sunday, the first Easter Sunday, Mary Magdalene, the one who had been demonized with seven demons, Joanna, her best friend, Mary, and others come to pay last respects because hope is gone, but at least we'll do this. And it says they bring spices to anoint Jesus' body, and one of them, always used, is myrrh. What is so profound here is now in this city that is named after myrrh, even the city's name is being re- renewed. Even this name of the city that is persecuting Christians is pointing them to truth because as God met with them in the tabernacle, so Jesus walks among the lampstands. As Jesus was worshipped through myrrh, and as myrrh was not needed because the resurrection was true, so these Christians are going to encounter him in the most profound ways. It is unbelievable that God can even take things like that, and tell people, I'm coming. He says, to this church in the city of beauty and perfume, here's what he says. These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. Easter is unbelievably significant for this congregation because what they were facing day in and day out needs hope, needs light, needs breakthrough that cannot be bought, invented, or conjured. Jesus shows up among Christians just like us and reminds them that he's both the first and the last and he was raised from the dead. Now the question is, why does this matter to this group of Christians? It's because they're being persecuted. For real. Someone didn't just say, I don't like you because you're not a Christian and oh, my feelings got hurt. This is the real deal. 
He says, I am the first and the last. He says, let me remind you from above what is truth. I am the author of history. I own history. Not you, not the church, not the Jewish community, and certainly not Rome. I know that you look around as Christians and all you see is power you, cannot, you do not have. All you see is grandeur and beauty you cannot overcome. I know you look around and you see religious might. You see money, power. You see temples that seem stronger and more beautiful than our faith. You see friends and family and your boss and average people and intellectuals saying that you're wrong, that you're mistaken, you're backward. At best, you're deceived, and at worst, you're just plain stupid. Hold, I am the author of history. Hold, all things are in my hands, not in their hands. Do not ever make the fundamental mistake of looking inward to find help. Do not look around you. Don't even look up. Look beyond the harbor. Look beyond that mountain that is actually paved in false hope. Look up at me. I am the first and the last. He says, I was dead and now I am raised. I actually died, he reminds them. I was actually tortured, and I was murdered, and I was in a grave for three days. This is not metaphor. I was in a casket for three days, but death did not master me. It did not overcome me. I have broken death's back, for I am living life. I hold the keys to death and Hades. They thought they held me, but I hold them. Now, why does this matter? Because as we're about to see Christians just like us, we're about to face the ultimate test of faith. Relationship, the ultimate showdown over allegiance, truth, and power. Renounce Jesus or retake your life. This church is living in, in well, they're ahead of the curve. The official persecution over, uh, from Domitian hasn't happened everywhere, but it's happening here on a local level. Jesus is saying these words to this church. Death did not overcome me and it will not overcome you. He says in verse 9 these, these things. I know your afflictions. I, I know your poverty, and yet you are rich. Again, such powerful words that some of us hear in this church, but we need to listen to. Jesus says, I know. So many times in our darkest hour, we look to the heavens as Christians and we look to Jesus and we sing our songs and we we do our devotions and we cry out to him and we just ask him, do you see and do you hear? I just need to know that you know that I'm not just talking to the ceiling or myself. Anyone been there before? Jesus shows up and says, I know. I know your affliction and I know your poverty. The attacks on these Christians have already begun to take their toll. These afflictions, this burden that crushes is now resulting in poverty. Poverty is not a weak word. Don't read it quickly. It means in Greek, nothing at all. Why are Christians in the middle of such a city known for wealth, export, and beauty so poor? The answer is painful. It is injustice. History tells us there were mobs. There was lootings. And losing jobs because they love Jesus. One historian records it this way. Listen carefully. And by the way, if you're starting to tune out because you're saying, I'll never be persecuted like that, just wait and listen. He wrote, the imperial cult permeated virtually every aspect of the city and even village life in Asia Minor. Individuals needed to aspire to this, to survive. 
they, to aspire economically, to get greater social standing. You could only do that by participating in some degree to the Roman cult. Citizens of both wealth and unwealth, upper class and lower class, ready, were required by law to sacrifice to the emperor on various occasions. Even visitors and foreigners were invited to do so. City officials were so dedicated to worshiping Caesar, they actually distributed tax funds so citizens could actually do the sacrifices right. It was impossible to share in the city's public life without also actually being involved in the imperial cult. These people were losing jobs. They were losing homes. They were losing status. They were starting to give up the necessities of life for one reason. Because they didn't just sing that they loved Jesus. They did. Jesus comes to this church and says, you're rich. You read that and it almost sounds like mockery or positive thinking that's not based in reality. But it's far from true. This little statement by our master, this profound declaration violates what many of us sitting in this room or online really hold true. If we could fully be transparent, even as Christians for a moment, it is this world and what we are and what we have and what we've achieved and what dreams we still want to accomplish that we hold so tightly. Reality at its core for most of us is in the now and maybe the distant future. But Jesus himself, the kingdom of God, is not here fully yet. It's not the standards of this life that will last, nor anything we've achieved, owned, or done. It is only actions done for Jesus that last. Jesus' half-brother James said it this way in James 2.5. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those whom he loved? Or what about Jesus' own teaching? In Matthew 6, 20. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth, moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves cannot break in and steal. Being rich, according to scripture, is not in what you have. It's not what human you can access. It's not your social networking. It's not how many Twitter followers you have or how many Facebook friends. It's not the money you have in your bank. It's not the title that you have, the education hanging on your wall. It's not wealth as we know it. Real wealth, according to the Christian movement, is unseen by both the powers of this world and the powers in the unseen world that hate Jesus. And so people that lost friends, listen closely, and lost homes, and lost reputations, and lost families, and lost jobs. Those that had a good life, or at least a secure life, were not poor because of bad investments, or the tanking of the economy, or sudden illness. They were poor because Jesus was not just Savior for them, but he was Lord of their money, their time, their family, their reputation, their wealth. Is anyone this morning wondering... Is anyone starting to understand how strongly most, if not all of us, hold on to what is fleeting? And is anyone asking yet, what would I do if this was really on the line for me? Can you imagine waking up in Canada and them saying, I'm sorry, uh, we need to remove your children from your home because you're teaching them things that don't fit the state. But if you renounce Jesus, you get to keep your kids. Can you imagine them coming and saying, well, here's the deal. Either you worship this way or, or you're done. 
We take your home. Your RSPs don't matter anymore. Can you imagine the stress on these people to give in? I mean, we're not talking about people mocking our faith or calling us one thing. This is actually saying family members go. Homes disappear. Many of us who are middle class in this room now are not, nothing but poor. This is the intensity. And before you think, well, that only happened in history, I remind you that the average rate of torture and murder and also suffering is at least 100,000 Christians per year. Two weeks ago in Nigeria, 60 Christians were burned in their church alive because they loved Jesus. Jesus comes to this church and says, be faithful. But if that's not enough, I mean, if that isn't enough drama, there's more. There is actually more grief and more inescapable suffering. It's now also with the Jewish community. Now, context is always king. If we will only understand the next few verses, if we understand history. Listen, please. One summarized the tension this way. Only Jews in Rome were exempt from worshiping the emperor. Interesting. Rome, from, from the beginning, knew that they were monotheistic, and they actually gave them special allowances. Jews had a special acknowledgement. They were actually an official religion recognized by the empire. Now, at first, Christians, almost exclusively or predominantly Jewish, lived under that umbrella. But as the movement became increasingly non-Jewish and distanced itself from Judaism, Jews might start denouncing Christians uh, as a member of an unauthorized religion. Christians, of course, did not improve the situation by claiming to be the true Israel. So such a claim by Jews, let alone non-Jews, could never be stomached by ethnic Jews of the time. So with that in mind, Jesus, a Jew himself, I remind you, the the God of Israel, the King of the Jews, here's what he says in verse 9. I know the slander of those who say that are Jews but are not. And they're from the, ready, synagogue of Satan. Slander is a strong word. It's defamation. It's verbal abuse behind your back or, or to your face. To the Jewish community leadership of this time in this community, they decided to do this. To deal with Christians was to kill two birds with one stone. Yes, they hated, and they did, Roman rule, Roman religion, sexuality, and politics. But they said, if we involve Rome, we can deal with this mutant cult connected to Jesus that's stealing our people. So by telling the Roman officials who were Christians, we can actually stay on the government's good side and deal with a group that's corrupting God's true faith. Another wrote, Jewish hostility towards Christians stems from two places. The conviction that Christians were worshipping a Galilean peasant Jew who died a criminal's death to them was just blasphemy. And the apparent success of Christians evangelizing both Jewish people in their own community and God-fearers, Gentiles, who followed the Jewish practice. Jesus himself shows up and says, they are Jews, but they're not. Now here's the question we need to ask before we keep going. Is this outright anti-Semitism? Well, the answer is these verses have been used in history under the name of Jesus to do the most atrocious things. These verses have been used in history to justify the Holocaust, mass killings all through the Russian Empire, and the list goes on and on. But this is not what the original intention of this was. Do not forget that Jesus himself is a Jew. 
The original 12 who are speaking are ethnically Jewish. Paul was, capital J, Jewish. John himself, who is recording this, is Jewish. See, they and we as Christians, both Jew and non-Jew, and both of them are here today, we have always viewed our faith or our conversion to the truest or fullest form of Judaism. At the heart of our movement is the idea that through Jesus, the whole Old Testament finds its pinnacle. All of us sitting here today, if you are a Christian, we're not anti-Jewish. We actually have been grafted into Judaism and its truest expression through Jesus, the Messiah. At the heart of our movement never can be an arrogance or a hatred for the Jewish people. They're God's people. But it must be also a deep sadness that many in the Jewish community, even today, have cut themselves off from their heritage, not our heritage, their heritage fully seen in Jesus. Every time you confess Jesus the Christ, it is offensive. Do you know why? Because you are saying Jesus from Nazareth is the Messiah. And actually many pray for the Messiah, even today at the Western Wall, and they've missed the true Messiah's coming. It's into that difficulty that this is written. That's why Paul taught this. Remember in our Roman series, Romans 2.28? A man is not a Jew if he's only one outwardly nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by a written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Real Jewishness, Paul was saying, and John here, and Jesus, being a real child of God, being in relationship with the God of the Bible, is not about your physical birth or ethnicity or your devotion to the Old Testament. A real child of God, a real Jew in the sense of religion is actually letting God circumcise your heart. And you only get this when the Spirit of God moves in. And you only get the Spirit of God when you say to yes to Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. The whole difficulty with the New Testament is there is a radical redefinition of the word Jew. We're not talking about the nation of Israel and we're not talking about ethnicity. But the biblical idea is this. Those who are spiritually Jewish are those who have met God through Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And to all of us, or many of us who are not Jewish here this morning, but have trusted in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through Jesus, it says in Romans and other places, we are literally grafted in. We are a wild root that never deserves to be part of it, but by God's mercy, we get to. We owe everything to the Jewish community because they are our cousins who prepared the world for Jesus. But now the tension exists. Rome on this side, Jerusalem on this side, Christians in the middle. Jesus says they're from the synagogue of Satan. Is that saying that every Jew is a Satanist, every synagogue is of Satan? No. What is being said here is this, and I love how one person put it. John's harsh rhetoric conveys in the strongest possible way that the very same judgment made last week on the Nicolaitans is made here. And Nicolaitans weren't Jewish. Those who do not follow the crucified Jesus, the risen Christ, stand outside of God's people. And if you do not know Jesus, you stand outside of his kingdom and you belong to another one. This should be bringing home very quickly to some of us this morning that spiritual conflict is real. This is a real war, not between Rome or Jerusalem or Christians. It is a real war being waged in the heavenlies and in our own experiences. Again, the idea, listen closely. That a Christian cannot be hurt or touched by Satan or evil. If you've been taught that in church, it's wrong. 
Satan is, in this context, using religious and political systems and was either in or inspiring people and community to oppose Jesus and his people. And he actually touches them. Satan, the slanderer, the accuser, the adversary, he is the ultimate source of our brothers' and sisters' tribulation. Just like the church is the body of Christ, so others can become the body of the other spirits in this world, even if they do not know it. But here's the uh uh-oh moment as we keep going. Never forget that knowing the true source of persecution realigns us as Christians. If the true source of persecution and hatred towards Jesus is demonic, then we must be turning to those who persecute us, knowingly or not, and we must love them and pray for those that hate us and love our enemies and pray for those that persecute us. Why? Because we know that they are made in the image of God too and they need Jesus just like we did. Amen? Don't ever, ever lift an arm to to defend the name of Jesus. He doesn't need your guns. He doesn't need your weaponry. What he needs is Christians who love their enemies. Don't be afraid, Jesus says in verse 10, of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you'll suffer for 10 days. Jesus shows up to this local church and says to them, can you imagine? Jesus, we're ready to worship this morning. We're ready to sing. We're all raising our hands. We're reading our Bible. And he comes and says, in 10 days, some of you are going to jail. That's not what I expected this morning. That's not happy. It's not, where's the worship? He says, some of you are going to suffer for 10 days. Now, whether that actually means a literal 10 days or a period of time, I do not know. But here's what Jesus says. Number one, it's coming. There is an impending crisis, I'm telling you. And number two, it's limited. Good news, bad news. But notice, this isn't metaphorical. Satan is going to actually place Christians in jail, and they're really going to suffer. And then Jesus says in part two of the verse, even more scary things. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus is one at the cross. Jesus is sovereign. Jesus will come and make all things right. But in the middle of this real war that we're involved in, there are casualties. Jesus comes to some of the children that he deeply loves, that he, the father elected, and says to them, some of you are going to walk through exactly what I walk through. Darkness will have its hour, but it will not win the day. Do not be afraid. Do not give in. For just as I died and I'm alive and overcame all enemies, so though they torture or murder you, you also will be resurrected, and I will overcome them for you. And then he says, I will give you a crown. Two crowns in the Bible, releasing probably Greek. One of them is a royal crown, one for the king. It's where we get the word diadem from. Ever grow up in a hymn-singing church where you sang that, crown him with many crowns? You had no clue what diadem meant? I didn't. I was like, what is that word? I have no clue. Royal crown. That's not what he's talking about here. We don't get that. That's not our position. He promises them a wreath. Comes from the Olympics. Funny enough, made from celery. Anyone? Or figs. It's not what I am pictured. The living Jesus of heaven and earth. And here's your celery crown. Wow. Awesome, I think. Yeah, you know, okay. Celery, pine, olive tree. It's not wealth in itself at all. But it symbolizes faithful victory. It was given to publicly acclaim and declare the winner. Jesus comes to a group of people that have suffered and says some of you are going to suffer more. 
but I will give you the crown of life. The call here is, is from Jesus to, for Christians to overcome, not by returning hostility, but laying down lives in confidence, here it is, that God will vindicate us in the end. But here, here's the uh-oh moment for real for us. This implies the greatest form of trust. You really need to believe in Jesus and trust in Jesus. You really, really, really need to believe that he is who he claims to be and that there actually is an afterlife and the resurrection is really true because if you even doubt it for a moment, you will not give up your life because you will believe that today is all that matters and maybe the resurrection is true, but I'm not sure. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Interesting that Smyrna is the only church that Jesus doesn't rebuke. Every other church, there's a problem, not here. And then he says these words. Listen. Eugene Peterson powerfully wrote, Whatever differences there are between the churches, two things are constant. The Spirit speaks, the people listen. Jesus said in the book of John, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will speak not on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Eugene Peterson writes these words, please connect. For the promise to be complete, there must be listening. Listening ears. Listening is the common task of the church. Churches, I love this, are listening posts. Listening is the spiritual act, far more than an acoustical function. Expensive, sophisticated amplification equipment doesn't ever improve your listening. It only makes you Uh, hear because listening so frequently decays into mere hearing and because there can be no church apart from listening the last word spoken to every church is he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit is saying to the churches hearing that begins as a physical function must actually elicit our spiritual response and when we do not respond in the book of Isaiah it actually says that people of God have heavy ears in other words their earlobes have fallen over and covered and they cannot hear anymore though they know God and the only time when God shows up in profound ways in revival like experiences in the Old Testament it says that he uncovers their ears so they can hear again some of us in this church have heavy heavy ears And we don't even know it. So Jesus comes and he says, at the end of verse 11, do you hear? Are you listening? And then he says, he who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. The book of Revelation, chapter 20, Aaron, you can put that up, that passage. It talks about the second death. It's hell. It's the only one that ripples into eternity. Basically, Jesus is saying to Christians these words. Some of you are going to die physically. You are physically going to lose everything, and some of you are going to lose your life, and it is brutal. But take hope, because that death does not ripple into eternity. The one you should be concerned about is the second death. And just so you know, because I am faithful, and you've been faithful in my power, you're not touched by the second death. So give up this life, don't worry, because the second one lasts forever. This one doesn't. How much trust would you need to say yes to Jesus at that moment? Do you really believe in eternity? Do you really believe in hell and heaven and resurrection? Because you will never, ever say yes publicly to Jesus when the rubber meets the road if you don't. And Jesus comes and says, you will not be touched by the second death. And then silence. Every time you read one of these things, you're like, it's like a phenomenal movie or a great page turner. And then you're like, well, what happened? 
Like you just go quiet and then you talk about beasts and weird things and I'm lost. But what happened here? Well, we don't know, but I can tell you this. Smyrna is one of the few places in church history where there's a second account after the Bible. John dies, but before he dies, one of his friends named Polycarp. Weird name, but all good. Many think that the book of Revelation was handed to Polycarp from John. He became the bishop of Smyrna. Polycarp stood in that area. And when he was 86 years old, a group of persecutors gathered him and then bound him to a stake. This is recorded by history. And they said to him, Polycarp, all you need to do is renounce Jesus and we'll let you go. And this is actually what historians recorded at the scene. He says, 80 and 6 years I have served Jesus. He has done me no wrong. How then could I blaspheme my king who has saved me? And at that moment, an 86-year-old man was burned at the stake for Jesus. The prophecy of suffering was being fulfilled. The question as we prepare to respond is this. Because it's hard to translate into this passage, but here it is. There are three things I'd like to share with you. And I want to admit, I struggled with this passage all week because this is not my reality. Here it is. Am I willing to be faithful? Am I willing to suffer? And am I willing to listen? Faithfulness is the heartbeat of this passage. Faithful to Jesus. Faithful to his uniqueness. Faithful to the Bible. Faithful to the worldview of the Bible. Faithful to love our enemies. Faithful to pray for those that attack us. Faithful for standing in truth where our world says your truth is wrong. Faithful for living out the truth. Faithful in a pluralistic, postmodern, post-Christian, technology-driven, sexually explicit, violent world. This passage reminds every one of us, by the power of the Spirit, we have to be faithful. We have to be faithful what we think, what we believe, and how we act. We do not get to sexually do anything we want anymore. We've been bought with a high price. We do not get to lie, cheat, or steal like people at work. We're different people. We do not get to say everyone goes to heaven. Why? Because Jesus claimed he's the only way. We do not get to say that everything sexually is just okay because God has a different plan. We don't get to say that I get to do what I want with my body when and where. No, no. We are slaves. He is the master. He owns us. We're a different people. We have to be faithful to be different. But to be faithful means persecution because in our culture too, nothing is new under the sun. It begins more and more. You're this, you're that, you're backwards. But how we respond must be marked like these people, not like we've seen in the last even hundred days in Africa or the United States by Christians. We never use political force or weaponry to defend our Lord. We use faithfulness. We have to be faithful. And if you are not faithful here this morning, you need to call upon the living Jesus and beg him to send his spirit on you and to revive you in such a way that you will be a shining, faithful person you have not been in years. And the world will look at you and your friends and your family and your kids and they'll say, well, who have you met? And you can say, well, I knew Jesus, but now I walk with him. We have to be faithful people. And we also have to be willing to suffer. Our symbol is a cross, not a lounging chair. The cross is the symbol of faithfulness in suffering. 
It is important to know that we will suffer. It is important to understand that we can even be touched by darkness in the middle. If you believe you cannot be hurt in this war and then it happens to you, then you think that you've failed or God has failed and you end up in your heart or physically walking away. Change your expectation. Many of us in this church will suffer at the hands of injustice or even by Satan. Why? Because we're in a real war. This is not a fairy tale. But if we know that our God is sovereign, while we suffer, we will not walk. Why do you think I preached on Philippians this year? So many of you said, that was amazing, but why didn't you talk about joy more? It's because I was trying to prepare you for when suffering comes, so you will have joy. That's why I walked through Lamentations in summer 2008. What pastor preaches through Lamentations in the summer? That's craziness. For seven weeks. I'll tell you why. Because I want you and myself to be ready so when suffering comes, we will know how to find joy and also we will be able to turn to lamentations and we will be able to wrestle with God, argue with God, cry with God, struggle with God and have hope in God. This is preparatory. But we need to be in a place where we would say as a church, yes, I will suffer for Jesus. Jesus said it in Mark 8. If anyone comes after me, they need to deny themselves and take up their cross. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me, the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man or a woman to gain the whole world but forfeit their soul? Or what can a man give or a woman give in exchange for their soul? Faithfulness to Jesus and his call. Suffering is part of our experience. And lastly, I just want to say we need to be willing to listen As Dan and the team comes up, I just want to end with this. Listening is so important. This is so important to us. God is always speaking. And many of us have heavy ears. So here's what we want to do. Last week we prayed this prayer, the prayer of examine, where we said, Jesus, just, you know, you can do what you want. Let me read it to you quickly. Because we wanted to be open to hear and listen. Precious Savior, why do I fear your scrutiny? Yours is an examine of love. That's so important. I'm afraid. I'm afraid what may surface. But I invite you to search me to my depth so I may know myself and, and you in fuller measure. In other words, I'm willing to listen. But here's what I want to do. Many of you have said quietly for the last year as more and more uh, um, unnatural, significant things are happening in people's lives right across our church in quiet. Many of you are frustrated and you're saying, John, I want to listen and I don't know how. You know, you, you talk about listening to God and it sounds like you've got some cell phone with him and I just don't have that Blackberry. Like, what? Please. And one of the things we want to end with is this. Many of you are frustrated because you want to listen, you don't know how. Some of you have judged others that do hear and you've dismissed them. Others of us feel great grief or guilt because we think we can't or we're a lesser Christian or, and the list goes on and on. So here's how we're going to do this very practically as we end. As you walk out the doors today, at all the walls, you have your connect sheets. You online, it's PDF. On there is another thing very similar to what we did at the Spiritual Gift Series where there is an actual survey you can take and a video to watch that explains to you six or seven different ways different Christians hear according to Scripture. 
My goal as your pastor is to free you up so you do not have to be like the person next to you, but you can hear and hear and then listen and listen clearly and then respond. Much of the blockage we have is sin, but for others of us, we have wrong expectations gifts, personality, all that connect in. And so I want to free this church, just like we did with spiritual gifts, to have a common script on listening. Because here's what I know will happen, because I hang out with Jesus. He's going to speak to many of us in different ways. Hear me. Some of us are going to have visions and dreams and almost hear him audibly. Others of us will encounter him through reading of scripture and nature. Others of us through corporate worship. You can find all that out. But here's the point. When you really don't just hear Jesus, but you listen, he's going to change you. And when he changes you, he's going to change others. And we're going to start looking at each other as we've started to see in our church and go, oh, he really is among us. And then we can start using the R word for real. Revival. So prepare yourself to respond in communion into this message this way. Number one, Jesus is a community. A few things we need to say. First and foremost, Lord, we publicly admit that we need to be faithful. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come upon people now across this church and online, and if they have been unfaithful, you would not, you just convict them in the right way and make them greatly faithful. For those who have been faithful, I just want to say Jesus is so pleased. Second prayer about suffering. Jesus, I can't imagine it, but I am willing to suffer for you. You just got to help me do it right. I lay down my children, my family, my education, my ethnicity, history, money, retirement. I will suffer if you ask. And lastly, for all of us, oh Jesus, we beg this of you. Speak and help us listen so we can be different people and so other people can meet you too. We ask this in the name of Jesus, who is the head of the church at Smyrna, Ephesus, and the head of C4 Church. And all of God's people said, Amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you want to know more about our church or give financially, go to our website at www.carotherscreek.ca.